Hey, a number of years ago, um, the best-selling Christian author wrote a book, and people bought it in droves. Um, They started reading it, and they absolutely hated it. It was so much different than what he um, would normally write about and a different voice than he would normally write. And, and people just couldn't understand why he would write something like this. Um, one of the lines from the book went like this. Uh, it doesn't really matter whether you grip the arms of the dentist chair or let your hands lie in your lap. The drill drills on. It's true, right? Like you go to the dentist and you can be all tense and uptight about it. Or you can just be relaxed and be fine about it, but they're going to drill, baby, drill, regardless of what you want to do, right? And, and like this author normally did, he wasn't just talking about going to the dentist. He was talking about life. Now, we can move into life and we can be all tense and we can, we can just kind of grin and bear it, or we can just take it as it comes, but regardless of how you approach life, Life just drills on. He goes on to say this. Meanwhile, where's God? Go to him with your need is go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Not exactly chicken soup for the soul, is it? Anybody know who wrote those words? C.S. Lewis wrote those words towards the end of his life. And like many of you, when you hear that C.S. Lewis wrote that, you think, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) That doesn't sound like C.S. Lewis. See, he was, he was always so hopeful. He was always so full of faith. He always pointed us in, in, in a good direction. What in the world happened? And the simple answer is that his wife died. And he was grieving. He was, he was despondent. And what he did, he, he did what he always did. He put pen to paper and he wrote what he was actually feeling. And people hated it. <laughs> It was so outside of his character. It was so outside. The honesty struck people, and they were really uncomfortable with it. And so as we jump into this series in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to see God say some really uncomfortable things for some of us. He's going to say some things that don't seem to necessarily line up with what we believe his character to be, but, but hear me, Ecclesiastes is just as much God-inspired scripture as Genesis and Matthew and Romans is. It's just as much God-inspired. So I want you to think of um, Ecclesiastes like a good friend that shoots straight with you about the difficulty of living in a fallen world. This is a friend who sits and talks with you about some of the most straightforward, relevant, um, difficult real-life issues and questions that we all wrestle with. They're all, at some way, shape, or form, they're all kind of tinkering around up there in our minds. This is not the friend that pretends that this stuff doesn't happen. Ecclesiastes is the friend that's real with you. And it's, it's, it's in the genre known as wisdom literature. 
Zach Eswine's a theologian. He says, The neighborhood of Ecclesiastes is filled with wisdom streets, whereas most of us are used to traveling Pauline highways and gospel roads. We're used to reading Paul's letters. We're used to reading Jesus' words and the narratives and the gospels. We're familiar with that, right? Like We like that because we, we know it. It's, it's, it's common for us. But when we get to Ecclesiastes, we're not as familiar with the terrain. It seems a little, a little strange. And so instead of going to Ecclesiastes, what do we do? We go to Proverbs, right? Proverbs is wisdom literature, and there's 31 chapters, and I can do one a day, and I can get my wisdom literature there, right? Nothing wrong with that. But to ignore Ecclesiastes, I think, is to ignore a whole lot of wisdom. So yeah, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are very different. Um, Proverbs tends to major on the positive aspects of life, whereas Ecclesiastes will give similar types of Proverbs. But then Ecclesiastes will say, yeah, um, about that. Uh." (laughs) And then it'll give us the negative side of life. Proverbs is about norms and rules. Ecclesiastes is a little bit more about the, the exceptions to the rules. So for example, um, remember when you were in third grade and you learned a very simple spelling rule that went like this. I before E. No, don't go there yet. Don't go there yet. The rule was I before E. So you had spelling words like believe and grieve and you thought you had it down, but then you came back the next day and they said I before E, except after C when the Sound is long E, and sometimes Y, and words that rhyme with A, like way, and eight, and neighborhood, and you just wanted to bang your head on the desk. Right? Why can't it just be I before E? (laughs) Why, Why do we have to have all the exceptions? I had it down. And then there's the exception. That's Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Proverbs is trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Teach us that, Pastor Tim. That's Proverbs. Ecclesiastes comes along and says, yeah, about that. Proverbs, a man or woman loves God and they prosper. Ecclesiastes, a man or woman loves God and they die. See the difference? (laughs) Because there is a difference. It's a big, big difference. I love the way that Phil Riken says it. He says, think of Ecclesiastes as the only book in the Bible written on Monday morning. (laughs) Then he goes on to say, Ecclesiastes is for people. Maybe this is you. Ecclesiastes is for people who have their doubts about God, but can't stop thinking about him. I love that because I've been there. Got my doubts. Got my questions, got my queries, but man, I just can't stop thinking about him. Surely he's got an answer to this. Surely there's a way forward, right? That's, that's where Ecclesiastes is. For those of us who struggle, who ask the big questions of life, some of the struggles of, of living in a fallen world, we, we grapple with those things. And I think we long to hear real answers from God. That's Ecclesiastes. That's where we're going. So today, 
We're going to look at the first 11 verses in um, the book of chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a Bible or a mobile device, I'd love for you to find that. Ecclesiastes is Old Testament. So you find um, Psalms, Proverbs, and then right after that is Ecclesiastes. Um, We're going to go uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Let's see uh, what God teaches us through this. Here we go. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. The Hebrew word for teacher here is koheleth. And when the Hebrew um, Old Testament was translated into Greek, koheleth is translated to the Greek word ecclesiastes, which means one who sits or speaks in the ekklesia. Okay? Ekklesia, ecclesiastes. So the teacher is the one who stands or sits in front of the gathering, the ekklesia. It was written sometime in the third century BC, probably around 250. Um, Israel at this point is ruled by a, an expanding Egyptian empire with an increasing international trade. One commentator says this, it was a period of intense economic development, intense international trade, and opportunities for great fortunes to be made, which is important for us to know. It's very important for us to know because the teacher is writing to go-getters in in an emerging economy, okay? His language is very business-oriented, We're going to read the same types of terms over and over again. Terms like money and riches and private property and salary and reward and compensation and success and net gains and surplus and deficit and yield and business and employee. It's got a marketplace perspective because Israel was turning into a marketplace economy. This wasn't written in our day and age, but it sure could have been. Ecclesiastes could have been written in our day and age. This was, um, this was after the Babylonian exile, and, and the Jewish people have started to come back, and they're, they're no longer living this kind of quiet, you know, pastoral, agricultural existence, depending on the Lord for their daily bread. They're, they're no longer like that. They've come back from Babylon cynical. Who wouldn't? They come back from Babylon cynical. They're theologically adrift, just kind of living these these horizontal, secular lives. And the teacher sees this, sees the way Israel is living, and he's concerned because they're chasing after the almighty shekel and forgetting God. And he's going to use um, a literary device called inclusio. It's it's, It's a bookend, okay? So there's a verse at the beginning, There's an echo verse at the end, and then everything in between those two bookend verses is the theme of what he's trying to say. So here's the inclusio, the first verse in the inclusio in chapter 1. Verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. He had to have been at least 40 to write these words. Right? And then the last verse in chapter 12, verse 8, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. There's the two bookend verses. And everything in between those two things is going to describe what life looks like when lived from a secular, horizontal perspective. So let's just close in prayer here and leave encouraged for the week. Right? It's like... Feels a little depressing, doesn't it? It's like that's what we're going to talk about for six weeks. Here's the good news. In between those two brackets, those two verses, 
the teacher is going to point us to hope. There is hope in Ecclesiastes. We're going to have to look outside of Ecclesiastes for most of that hope, but there is hope in Ecclesiastes that the word meaningless in Hebrew actually means vapor. Like if you, when you walked outside this morning, if, you, if you've walked outside this morning and you breathed air, what'd you see? Vapor, right? And just as quick as that vapor was there, it disappeared, right? Doesn't last very long. That's, that's what vapor is. It's extremely brief. So when the author says that word, that's the primary idea he's trying to communicate. Like life is just short. It's so brief. Same word is used in Psalm 39.5. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a vapor. Same word. Such a breath. And then James, the brother of Jesus, uses similar language in the New Testament chapter 4 of his letter. What is your life? You are a mist, vapor. It appears for a little while, and then it vanishes. Now, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe this, ask anybody in their 80s or 90s how fast their life went. And they will tell you, like that. I, I remember my grandma Mueller telling me since I was a little boy, she, she would say, Tim, I still feel like I'm 12 on the inside, but I am not 12 on the outside. Right? And I just remember thinking, grandma, why are you telling me this? I'm 12. I don't need to, I don't need to hear this, but, but that's, she, she constantly, Tim, life is a vapor. It's so short. But then there's another meaning for this word that I think is helpful. Um, because when you breathe that air out into the cold Kansas morning, if you try to grab that, what do you have in your hand? Nothing, right? There's, there's no substance to it. Not only is, there, is it there and then gone, even when you grab it, there's nothing to it. Vapor is both brief and lacks substance. Goes by fast, and there's nothing much to it. It's how he starts his book. It's how he ends his book, and everything in between. Is that's what it's about. And, and when you repeat a word in Hebrew, it's like supercharging it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That means that God is really, really holy. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That means life is really, really meaningless. There's not much to it, and it's here, and it's gone. I mean, the clothes we wear, here today, gone tomorrow, cars we drive, jobs we secure, money we make, vacations we enjoy, here today, gone tomorrow, like a vapor. And he's going to show how this... Um, how this idea, this principle of vapor applies to a very specific area in chapter one. He's going to talk about our work, what we do with the majority of our hours during the day, whether that's in the marketplace or in a school, at home, in a business, at the hospital. What we do during the day is what he addresses in chapter one. So here we go, verse three. He says, what do people gain? That Hebrew word appears nine times in this book, nowhere else in the rest of the Bible. And it's just a business term that means leftover. So when you think about uh, your income, your expenses, your payroll, your overhead, you put all the numbers into the spreadsheet. 
what's left over is your, is your gain. That's what, that's what that word means. What do you have left over? What do you get out of something? Okay. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil, highlight, underline, put a box around these words, under the sun? Under the sun. This is the name of our series, Under the Sun. The question is not, what do people gain or profit from their hard work? It's not what he's asking. He's asking, what do we profit? What do we gain from our hard work under the sun? That qualifier is extremely important. What do we gain for all of our hard work under the sun? The, the under the sun phrase is going to show up 29 times in 12 chapters. This is the theme that runs all throughout the book. And it simply means, under the sun means, living without taking God into account. To live independently of God, without thinking about him, not factoring him into your life, into your relationships, uh, living as if it all depends on you, trusting in your own wisdom. Sure, sure, uh, you might believe in God. You might even show up to church on a cold, snowy February morning when nobody else does. But just because you believe in him, you still live as if God is irrelevant or he's impotent or he's not interested in your life. You're not a theological atheist. You're a practical atheist. You live as if he doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. He doesn't factor into anything. You live preoccupied with vertical living or horizontal living and forget about the, hor- the, the vertical relationship that you've been invited into with your heavenly father. The teacher asks, if that's your mindset, if that's how you approach life and work, what are you gaining from it? What do you gain from it? And then he's going he's gonna to compare the futility of that with the things that we see in nature. Verse 4 He says, generations come and generations go. That's actually a bad translation. The original language actually says generations go and generations come because that's how it actually works, right? Generations pass off the scene and a new generation comes along, but it's flipped because our translators know we would read that and go, he didn't say that right. It's it's generations come and generations go. But either way, it's the same. He's pointing out that generations pass from the scene and then there's another one right behind it. And then that one passes from the scene and there's another one behind it. And then that one passes and there's another. It's just this constant movement. It goes on and on and on. Constant change. And then the last part of that verse. But the earth remains forever. Constant change, but nothing really changes. Constant work, but nothing's ever gained. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. This is, this is I, I love this. The word hurries uh, is used to describe a dog that's run for a really long time and he's just panting. It's, it's used in Isaiah 42 to describe a woman who's exhausted from childbirth. So again, in Psalms, um, the sun going across the sky is described as a bridegroom leaping out of his tent and just prancing across the sky to his bride, right? It's very poetic. (laughs) In here, in Ecclesiastes, the sun goes across the sky and by the time it gets to the other side, it's just exhausted. But he gets up the next day, does it again, 
and gets up the next day and does it again. It's over and over and over again. Anybody feeling this? Anybody identify with that at all? Verse 6, the wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. Unlike the sun that's trapped in a consistent east to west pattern, the wind has a lot more freedom. Wind can go wherever it wants. And sometimes it's a gentle breeze, sometimes it's a hurricane. But however the wind is on any given day, it does it again the next day and the next day and the next day. And nothing is ever gained. Just blows around randomly. So much activity. Nothing to show. Verse 7, all streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. It kind of looks like he's pointing out the evaporation cycle, but he wouldn't have known that back then. He wouldn't have understood that. He's just pointing out that all of these rivers flow into the sea, but the sea level never rises. Like imagine an ancient man sitting by the dock of the bay, Watching this stuff, just this huge river flow into the sea and then watching the sea never rise. It's like, how does that, anybody else notice this? <laughs> how does that happen? He's, he's, all that work, all that movement, nothing changes. Pour water. It's like life. All this incessant movement. It's like work. You'd think that you'd have something accomplished. Like a hamster on a wheel. We just keep going round and round and round and round. Verse 8. All things, the cycles of nature he just talked about, all things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Your eyes and your ears, they kind of do their thing without you really ever thinking about it. And you wake up the next day and they just do the same thing. And then you wake up the next day and they do the same thing. It's over and over and over. Verse 9, what has been will be again. Cycles of nature repeat themselves. What has been done will be done again. Human history repeats itself. And here it is. There is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new in this secular world. Nothing has ever really been gained, even with all of our activity. And, and he anticipates an objection, right? Because you hear verse 9 and you think, he says there's nothing new under the sun, but like the iPhone's new. That wasn't here 100 years ago. He, he anticipates the objection. Verse 10, is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. His answer, it was here already long ago. It was here before our time. He's saying the iPhone isn't really new. It's just a, it's just a new addition of something that we had before. There's nothing new under the sun. And here's his conclusion. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Man, sobering words especially for those of us who, who, who want to leave or, or talk about leaving a legacy. Because see, you know what's true? Your great-great-grandchildren won't even know your name. Four generations from now, your own descendants won't know your name. You say, yes, they will. Okay. Do you know your great-great-grandparents' names without the help of Ancestry.com? 
People are born, they live, they die. And it happens again. And it happens again. And it happens again. And it happens again. Should we close in prayer now or? It's just true. It's just true. So why so much activity? Why so much spinning so desperately and frantically for stuff under the sun? It's so brief. It's so empty. Anyway, I mean, if you want to summarize this section of Ecclesiastes, you can say it this way. Your labor under the sun is pointless. Your labor under the sun is pointless. There's, there's actually um, there's a professor at the University of Texas, Austin, who wrote a book called If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? It's a great title. And he's asking, he's asking a very simple question. Um, he says, once you've obtained everything you've always wanted, are you happy or not? Like, think about when you were 15. I want this. Or when I'm 40, I want this. Or when you were 30 and you thought about when you were 60, I want this, I want this. Are you happy? And, and he, he did lots of research and he found the vast majority of people would say no. They, they would say no. And he asked the question, why? It's a good question. He could, have just read, he could have just read Ecclesiastes 1 and found the answer, but I guess he just wanted to do the research. And the solution he came up with, it's a little fascinating to me. He says, instead of chasing after success or money or fame, he talks about the hedonic treadmill, which is a theory that says, um, as a person makes more money, the expectations and the lifestyle in relation with the money you make goes up. Like you'd think if you make more money, you'd be happier. But by the time you get more money, you've already spent it because you wanted all of these things and it doesn't make you any happier. So he says, instead of chasing stuff, instead of chasing money, chase something different. And he says, you should chase mastery. You should try to master a skill, um, an instrument, you know, become the master at what you do. And in that mastery you'll find fulfillment. To which I always ask the question, does that work? I don't, I don't think it does. Because mastery is just something else under the sun. It's just something else. It's however new it is, however shiny it is, it's just not going to satisfy. You'll, you'll end up asking yourself, okay, at the end of my life, what did I really gain from that? What's the point? Any work done under the sun, will not satisfy. And now, you don't have to go out and buy his book because you already know the answer. So, here's what I wonder. I don't know this for sure, um, but I wonder if something's happening inside of you. And the reason I wonder if something's happening inside of you is because it happened inside of me when I was preparing for this. I mean, because you get to the end of this section, and we'll pick it up right here next week, but you get to the end of this section and you're like, okay, is that it? Like, really? Like, the point of the message is that everything I do under the sun is meaningless? There's a guy who, who did a new translation of the Old Testament, and in his introduction to Ecclesiastes, he uses a phrase that resonated with me, because I have that same feeling that some of you do. When you get to the end, it's just like, ugh. 
I don't like this. And we're going to come back to this phrase throughout the series. Here it is. He says, it's not enough, but it's not nothing. Ecclesiastes is not enough, but it's not nothing. There are lessons for us. It's important for us to learn that that work under the sun is meaningless. There are lessons to be learned there, but that's not enough because with the lesson comes a longing. And the longing goes a little bit something like this. Okay, if work under the sun won't satisfy me, what will? Where do I find satisfaction? Like, Like deep, real satisfaction. Ecclesiastes uncovers the longing through the lesson. The problem is, our teacher doesn't answer the longing because he doesn't know about Jesus. He doesn't know about the cross. He doesn't know about the resurrection. He doesn't know about the indwelling of the spirit. He doesn't know about the church. He doesn't know about all the stuff that we know because we know the rest of the story. And so because he can't take us to those places, I will. So each week as we go through this, we're going we're gonna to talk about the lesson. We're also going to address the longing that, in, that it uncovers because the lesson isn't nothing, but it's not enough. And we're going to go to the New Testament, to the one who is enough. All right? And here's, here's this week's. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is assuming that you've read everything that, that he's already written, right? But we don't have time to do that. So let me just remind you, this is the great resurrection chapter. This is, this is where he reminds us. He talks about the, the fact that, that Christ has risen from the dead. And if that's not true, our faith is in vain. And we should be pitied amongst all people. It's, it's just this, it talks about Jesus' resurrection and how it's been applied to us and all that comes with that resurrection life. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter. Starts to wrap it up in verse 7. He says, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have resurrection victory through Jesus. And right after that, here it is, verse 58. Therefore, because we can experience that victory, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. We've talked about that before. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Don't miss this, church. Because you know that your labor in the Lord, say these last four words with me, is not in vain. Say it again. Is not in vain. You say, wait a minute, Tim. Paul's contradicting Ecclesiastes. No, he's not. If if Paul says your labor under the sun is not in vain, that would be a contradiction. But in Ecclesiastes, it's your labor under the sun is vain. Paul says your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Completely different. Labor under the sun, labor in the Lord. Two completely different things. Paul is reminding us. Maybe this is brand new for some of you. Paul is reminding us that when we trust Jesus, as we trust Jesus, he fills us with his resurrection life. 
We become one with him, and in union with Jesus, we enter into his kingdom work together with him. He enables us. He empowers us by his spirit. Ephesians tells us that he's established good works in advance for us to do. And we join him. We step into those with him. And in partnership, we are used to build the kingdom. Paul says that is work, not under the sun. That is work in the Lord. And that's eternally significant. So here's the bottom line, okay? Here's the bottom line for today. Under the sun work is like a vapor. But in the Lord work is eternally significant. Under the sun work is brief and lacks substance. In the Lord work lasts forever. Has all kinds of substance. Under the sun work is like a vapor, but in the Lord work is eternally significant. Have you ever met anybody who's talked about their job, but they don't use that word? They talk about their ministry. I'm not, I'm not talking about pastors or, or, or priests or, or missionaries. Talk about bankers. Talking about business women. Talking about teachers, stay-at-home moms, stay-at-home dads, nurses, people who work in finance, people who view their work as ministry, their labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's eternally significant. They get up every day, just like you and me, and they view their work not as under the sun, but in the Lord. And that is a small change. It's a small change in attitude. It's a small change in perspective. It's a small change in lens, but it is eternally significant. And, and, and we don't have time, but we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and see where our work was cursed. Our work has been cursed because of the fall. The prevailing attitude towards work, most of human history has been in one of struggle. I mean, come on, in our own culture, everybody's working for the weekend, right? Everybody just can't wait till retirement. Do you know how new and modern in, 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 in human history the idea of retirement is? That is not something that's been around for a while. We, we, we can't wait to clock out for the very last time. That is an attitude on the side of work under the sun. That's where that comes from. That's the perspective. It's an, it's an attitude. But Paul is reminding us that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're offered a better way. We're, we're offered the attitude and the perspective, the lens of in the Lord work. That's not any less difficult, but it's eternally significant. And so Paul says, always, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Always, fully, doesn't leave a whole lot of room there for us, does it? Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your work in the Lord is not in vain. Okay, so what do you do with this, right? How in the world? I, Tim, I hate my job. What in the world am I supposed to do? Here's my suggestion. My suggestion is you take this text with you to work. 
you have a little conversation with Jesus and you ask him questions like, okay, how much have I gotten wrapped up in the whole under the sun type of work? How much have I allowed the culture around me to invade my headspace and my heart space? And how much do I need you to come in and renew my mind and set me free from that? Again, Ephesians tells us, he has already created good works for you to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And all you have to do is ask him to empower you to know what they are. Pay attention to them, to to step into them with him. He's already lined them up. What an adventure. What an adventure. We have the opportunity to wake up every single morning and not, okay, I just got to get through this. The sun hurries across the sky. Not, I just got to get through this. No, we have the opportunity every morning to say, all right, Jesus, here we go. Love these people through me. Whatever, whatever you do, whatever your occupation, whatever your job, Jesus, show me the good works you have set in advance for me to do. And what happens in that place, with that perspective, with that attitude, that's eternally significant. Like that will matter in a thousand years. Under the sun work, it's like a vapor. It's here today, it's gone. Doesn't have much substance. In the Lord work, it's eternally significant. You've been invited to work like that, to approach your work, to approach your occupation like that. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, thank you for this quirky book, Ecclesiastes. It's a little bit like a mirror that we hold up to our face and we stare into, trying to read it, trying to figure out what it means, but in the end, we find that it kind of reads us. It's fascinating, it's, it's beautiful, but it's also kind of haunting at times. And, and, and my prayer is that, that as we take a deep dive into it over the next few weeks, that, that your word would speak to us. We know there are lessons in it. We know those lessons uncover some longings that we all have. And we know that we'll ultimately find our satisfaction in Jesus. So would you prepare our hearts each week as we go through this? God, I pray for my friends here in the room, my friends watching online as we go into our work week, whatever that is, the marketplace, the schools, the police stations, government, homes, hospitals, wherever we find ourselves. As you carry us into those places, I pray for supernatural work to be done in our lives and in people's lives as each of us, we view our work not under the sun, but as in the Lord kind of work. Would you give us the right attitude? Would you give us the the proper perspective? Renew our minds We love you. We pray all of these things. Your powerful, precious name. In the name of Jesus, I ask all.